The news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, and today I'm going to get the date right. It's Thursday the 9th of February. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong. And a warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the business headlines. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee has expressed hopes of signing a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates as he arrived in Dubai on the final stop of his week-long trip to the Middle East. At an investment forum, Mr. Lee said the trading goods between the two economies reached $12.8 billion in 2021, around 35% more than the year before. In a key speech to party officials, President Xi Jinping hailed China's modernization and growth as a model for other developing nations. Speaking at a study session to follow up on the key decisions taken at the 20th Party Congress last October, President Xi said China had debunked the myth that modernization means westernization. He said China's path showed a new modernization model different from the West, which he called a brand new form of human civilization for developing countries to follow. Fitch Ratings revised up its forecast for China's economic growth in 2023 to 5% from 4.1% previously, reflecting evidence that consumption and activity are recovering faster than initially anticipated after the authorities moved away from their dynamic zero-COVID policy stance in late 2022. The Reserve Bank of India raised its benchmark interest rate by 25 basis points to 6.5%, in line with expectations, but slowing from the 35 basis point hike in December. But the decision met with growing dissent within the six-member Monetary Policy Committee, which split 4-2 to raise the benchmark repurchase rate. And Fed Governor Christopher Waller on Wednesday said that the fight against inflation is not over and he warned that US interest rates could rise higher than markets are anticipating. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by wealth investment strategist Enzio Ronfarl and Peter Churchhouse, founder of Portwood Capital. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, business development director at SafePro Group. And please do get in contact with us. As always, our text number 63935925. You can email us, moneytalk at rthk.hk. Post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks closed lower, reversing most of Tuesday's rally. As traders weighed up the prospect of higher-than-expected interest rates, the terminal rate, which is the anticipated peak of US interest rates, reached a new cycle high last night of 5.18%. The S&P 500 slid 1.1% to end at 4,118. The Dow fell by 208 points, or 0.6%, to 33,949. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 1.7% to close at 11,911. Alphabet shares were down 7.4%, wiping out $110 billion in market capitalization after BARD, which is the artificial intelligence chatbot it announced earlier this week, was found to have made a factual error in its very first demonstration. BARD is Google's rival to OpenAI's ChatGPT. The pan-European Stock 600 index rose a quarter of a percent, as did London's FTSE 100. 
Hong Kong stocks gave up morning gains to close lower. The Hang Seng fell 15 points, or 0.1%, to 21,284. The tech index dropped 1.9%. Metuan dropped 6.5% following reports that TikTok's parent ByteDance is planning to launch a rival delivery platform in mainland China. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite slipped half a percent lower to 3,232. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil continued its rebound, climbing 1.4% to $85.04 a barrel. Gold is at $1,876 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell six basis points to 3.62%. And the US dollar inched higher overnight. The euro this morning trading at $1.07. The buck's trading at 131.37 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.20 and three quarters of a cent and nine Hong Kong dollars and 47 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.79 and a half versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin fell 1.4% to $22,900. Around Asia Pacific stock markets this morning, uh, we're seeing some declines at the open. The SX200 in Australia off a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is also off half a percent. Uh, and futures markets are pointing to a loss of about 200 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Eight oh eight and a half. Let's welcome our regular Thursday commentator, wealth investment strategist Enzio von Fall. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And joining him is Peter Churchhouse, founder of Portwood Capital. Welcome back, Peter. Uh, morning, the other Peter. Thank you. Thank you for coming along, both of you. Um, Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee has expressed hopes of signing a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates. He's in Dubai. On the final stop of his week-long trip to the Middle East, he said trading goods between the two companies. Uh, reached $12.8 billion in 2021. That's around 35% more than the year before. And we've been covering this trip to the Middle East all week. Um, on, his, uh, on his shopping list yesterday was a, um, a trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates while he was in the Saudi Arabia. On his shopping list um, was a secondary listing of Saudi Aramco in Hong Kong. But let me get your thoughts, first of all, on this trip to the Middle East. Do you think um, Mr. Lee and the Hong Kong government is pushing on an open door here? This is uh, time is ripe to really develop these uh, trade and economic relations with Middle Eastern nations. Well, uh, 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 maybe if I comment first, yeah. uh, I think, yes, it very much is a bit of an open door. Um, Saudi Arabia has ex- expressed, and the Middle East generally has expressed a desire in the last year or two to diversify its e- economy away from oil uh, and diversify its trading partners uh, away from a focus on the U.S. and, and Europe. So, uh, in fact, um, this uh, session with uh, John Lee and, and and Saudi and and uh, UAE uh, is is probably well timed, and uh, I think will be um, quite well received uh, by the folks in that part of the world. So uh, it's, it's probably going to result in something, and uh, I suspect also the efforts to uh, drag Aramco 
to list in Hong Kong may well prove successful. There are advantages for Hong Kong or for for, uh, Ramco to list in this part of the world. One of the disadvantages might be that liquidity in this market perhaps is uh, somewhat less than it would be in, say, New York or London, uh, but perhaps that liquidity might not be the deciding factor. That would be a huge coup, wouldn't it, for Hong Kong to get a secondary listing of Aramco. It would be the biggest <coughs> stock listed in Hong Kong. Yes, indeed. It's, as uh, I think uh, you've mentioned before, its, it's market cap of um, Aramco is about four times the size of the largest listed uh, company in, in Hong Kong. Uh, so that would be a big boost uh, to the overall uh, market cap and also probably have a significant increase in the overall liquidity uh, of the uh, the Hong Kong market mm. and would in its, in its own way attract further investment from uh, around the world to uh, be, be channeled through uh, the Hong Kong market. NZO, it's also working the other way, isn't it? Because um, as, as well as, as Peter said, Middle Eastern economies wanting to diversify mm. and find new markets, it's also mm. a priority for President Xi Jinping to develop uh, markets with the Middle East. He visited Saudi Arabia in December. So this is really um, having good sort of, uh, if you like, traction from both sides. I think so. It's, it's also important for Hong Kong, building on what Peter was saying, it's the shape of things to come, I think. I mean, when would we 20 years ago have read about... The, the government going to the Middle East to, mm. to, to work on business. So the Belt and Road and also this increase in renminbi-denominated trade I think is going to be a big theme in Hong Kong going forward. I believe to have read that we're already the world's largest RMB trading place. Um, so I can see that that whole RMB decoupling from the US dollar and Hong Kong being affected by that a great deal, and especially as, as regards the Middle East trade. And this is where we have an advantage, isn't it, in financial services, developing, helping develop financial services in the Middle East, opening up the Middle East to to Chinese customers and investors as well through Stock Connect. Absolutely correct. And, uh, uh, of course, as we all know, there's a huge amount of uh, wealth uh, parked in the Middle East in every country, really. Uh, And uh, I think opening up trade links and market links uh, with those countries will probably lead to uh, significant flows of capital, uh, not just through the Hong Kong stock market, but also direct investment perhaps into China and perhaps into the Greater Bay Area, which, of course, is uh, a key focus of policy uh, in China right now. Okay. Well, I want to move on because I've got quite a lot of things I want to discuss with you both this morning. Um, There were two State of the Union speeches yesterday. You may be surprised to hear that. Of course, President Joe Biden delivered his third State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress. But also on Tuesday, President Xi Jinping gave his annual speech at the Central Party School to all newly elected Central Committee members and other top officials. And these speeches are something akin to the US President's annual State of the Union address. And in it, President Xi explains his political program and discusses key issues for the year ahead. And this year's theme was Chinese-style modernisation. And in the key speech to party officials, President Xi hailed China's modernisation and growth as a model for other developing nations. He said China's debunked the myth that modernization means westernization. He said China's path shows a new modernization model, which is different from, from the West. And he called that a brand new form of human civilization for developing countries to follow. And he urged party members to grasp the idea correctly 
and promote Chinese uh, modernization. Now, he said also it's, it's necessary not only to create higher efficiency than capitalism, but also to maintain social equity more effectively. So this is, I think, the first time he's publicly discussed the idea of creating something, a, a higher efficiency, if you like, than capitalization. So do you think this is going to become a key consideration now in forming economic policy on the mainland going forward? Well, if we talk about efficiency, uh, one of the things that's going to impede that, of course, is um, uh, the Western ban on export of uh, t technology mm. and high-quality high chips into China and high-quality technology. If you're going to make efficiency a key factor in your economy, you can't do that without, uh, without a, a intense reliance on on uh, technology. And so I think uh, that's going to be a real challenge for China in that regard. Uh, I also detect a little bit of backpatting on, on, <laughs> on the part of the leadership in, in both countries, to be honest. Um, the leader in China is suggesting we've completed uh, in a few decades uh, the process of industrialization, which took the West <laughs> hundreds of years. Well, in actual fact, the, the reason that they've been able to do that is because the Western world uh, reduced um, uh, anti-competitive pressures and reduced prote protectionism back in the early 80s under Reagan and Thatcher, which has allowed uh, China and other de uh, developing nations to grow their businesses and export and, and attract capital and so on. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the West has, has put in place the mechanisms by which countries like China have been able to modernize and, and grow their economies. And I think uh, very often there's a bit of a, 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 a temptation to forget uh, that the, the reason for this has actually uh, really sprang from the West. It's right to focus on efficiency, though, isn't he? Because if you look at the numbers, China's mm. total factor productivity is about 40% of the American level. So there's a, a big gap there to catch up. There's a big thrust to this also, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago, which is the whole demographic problem in China. And if they, the only way they can keep growing is if they're going to have less growth in the labor forces to boost the productivity. So there's a very strong incentive there. Um, I just want to add something. Kevin Rudd of the um, obviously foreign prime minister of Australia wrote something very interesting in foreign affairs of the world according to Xi Jinping about the very strong ideological thrust that we can um, expect. And basically what he's saying is that Xi has pushed politics to the Leninist left, economics to the Marxist left, and foreign policy to the nationalist right. In other words, what he's saying is that one can't, with Xi Jinping, discount the whole ideological Marxist-Leninist construct, this desire for struggle um, in what he's saying. I think that's mm -hmm. just to, to make our listeners, to sensitize our listeners a little bit. I wasn't aware of this, how strong that is. And the other point is, of course, that it's great to tap yourself on the back. But I mean, Japan also did this, frankly, in a, in a way of industrializing itself. It didn't. It didn't. It's. It's not. Anybody who thinks that Japan is westernized, had better go and discuss bunions a bit more. And following on from what Kevin Rudd said, I mean, President Xi is clearly positioning the Chinese system as something that's in competition with capitalism. Do you think that means we're likely to see an even stronger role for the state in the economy? Quite the opposite. I think that he's going to have to 
understand that he mixes the two. The Germans have been quite good about this. What they've done, for instance, is they've put the unions onto the management boards of companies, and that means that there's a lot less labor strife, whether it's state-owned or, or privately owned, I believe. And I think you're going to find this with China more and more. There's sort of an amalgamation of the state with the private sector. I believe that Jamestown just came out with with some numbers illustrating that the private sector actually continues growing in China despite Xi's ideological threats. And that's just a raison d'etre. They have to do that to keep growing and to get that productivity number boosted with declining population and birth rates. I mean, I, I find it hard to see how a state-dominated economy is going to be a more efficient one. It seems to be the opposite to me, that um, the, the most efficient countries and economies are the ones where state, the state takes a, a back role, if you like, in it. Again, I, and then I'll, I want, obviously, Peter also to talk. I just don't think that it's, we, we can't just sort of, I, I, I'm not sure that the Chinese, by definition, are, are communists in, in nature, I think they're actually very capitalistic anyway. So what we in the West see as a state-owned enterprise isn't totally that in, in China because there's a very strong capitalist thrust within these things. Now, Peter, what did you make of President Biden's State of the Union address? He did focus on China, a little bit anyway, and, and he defined the relationship with China as um, a competitive one. So I'm wondering what that means going forward. Do you think that means more sanctions like uh, those that you mentioned earlier that we've seen on exports of high-tech uh, manufacturing equipment to China? I suspect we've probably reached peak sanctions uh, at the present time. Uh, and uh, I, I think Biden's point that we're, uh, we're in competition uh, at, on, a, on an economic sense, um, uh, I, I think, uh, is, is quite telling. And that, I, I think... Uh, will be, should be a, a positive for, for markets generally. Uh, however, uh, if we look at uh, what's what's going on in the in the markets right now, um, we've got a s bit of a serious disconnect uh, in the equity markets in the U.S. and and uh, elsewhere in the West. Uh, where we're seeing a big pickup in the markets in the last uh, month or so, and we're seeing a reversal of the trends that we saw the latter part of last year, where high-tech companies and cyclicals, which tend to be high-growth, high-earnings uh, growth, uh, high growth companies, have outperformed the defensive sector. Mm. Now, that, that's really a disconnect with the economic realities that we see, which uh, Biden is trying to address. Uh, we're looking, for example, at the U.S. economic growth this year is going to drop to around 1% or 1.5%, maybe even uh, go into recession. Uh, we're looking at earnings per share in the uh, S&P 500 to be flat or even negative. Um, tech companies are t firing thousands and thousands of workers. Um, and and the, the, the U.S. market is still very, very expensive. Uh, so in a way... Uh, the, 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 I think we're going to see a bit of a reversal uh, in, the, um, in, the, in the stock market and the capital markets over the coming, uh, the coming months or so as people come to grips uh, with the fact that uh, growth is going to slow and earnings is pretty much flat to negative uh, and the market is not priced for that. Isn't there also a disconnect between what the market is doing and what the Fed is saying? It focused, I know, very much 
in the last few days when it rallied after the Fed meeting on, on Jerome Powell's comment uh, that this inflation has started. But it seemed to ignore what he then went on to say, which is that, yes, it has, but it's at a very, very early stage. And then he went on to say things like the jobs report were a big shock. Um, and if it carries on like that, uh, they're going to have to raise interest rates faster again. Well, I, th- I think the, the markets, to my mind, are totally addicted to this fabulous book by Carmen Reinhardt, This Time It's Different, Well, It Isn't. Every time the rates, the Fed funds have been jacked up as strongly as they have even this time from, from the get-go, eight, eight, eight sessions ago, so to speak, um, there's been a, a recession has followed full stop. And that's because what we're seeing now, what Peter was saying, building on that, the firms are cutting costs. The businesses, the fixed investment in the fourth quarter contracted by 27%. 27% contraction on an annualized basis. The domestic price, the domestic consumption expenditure contracted by 1%. So the consumer isn't feeling as jolly as, as these numbers would have us believe. And I think those chickens are going to come home to roost. Now, there will be lagged effects because, yes, things are different with the structure. But I, I don't think that you can take the basic economics away that if your job is being threatened, you're not going to go out and spend more. It sounds like from what you're saying then, Enzio, that uh, you, you don't think the Fed has saved the U.S. economy from recession. I think the Fed cannot make another mistake. Um, it's made too many in the past. There, was, there have been ex- some excellent papers on this. And I think it has to really watch it that it, it tries to stamp out inflation, although listeners know that I feel that there's a lot of sticky supply-side inflation around, actually nine types of it. So that one isn't going to go away. So people thinking that inflation is going to reach 2%, I'm afraid... Um, maybe a little bit in cloud, cloud cuckoo land. What I tend to look at when mm. I'm looking at a lot of this is, uh, quite frankly, the bond markets in the U.S. Mm. are a much better predictor of uh, where the economy is likely to head than the equity markets. The equity markets are all focused on a soft landing, all is rosy, everything's great. But the bond markets, for example, we've got the 10-year Treasury uh, is, uh, is a lot lower uh, and on its yield than the two year now that 's telling us that the bond markets expect uh, that the economy is going to be pretty soft uh, going forward in the medium in the medium term, perhaps not in the next three months, but certainly in the medium term uh, so I, I would tend to agree or, or accept the bond market a sort of uh, analysis if you like of the uh, of, of the outlook of the economy than I would for the equity market. Okay, well, it's great to talk to you both. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning on a wide range of topics. You heard there Peter Churchhouse, who's the founder of Portwood Capital and wealth investment strategist Enzio Von File. Times 8.25. On the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, who's business development director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, a stray balloon has upended for now efforts to improve relations between the United States and China. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has postponed his trip to Beijing, which was due to have commenced on Sunday. Let me ask you, Ross, how badly has this bizarre incident, because it is a rather bizarre incident, isn't it, damaged relations between the U.S. and China? And what was the stated intentions of both presidents of the G20 uh, last November to actually try and improve relations? 
Well, the bizarre part is getting caught. Uh, well, all, all uh, major countries spy on each other. This surprises no one. But uh, seeing the balloon uh, appear in a place uh, or at a distance or at a height uh, the, where, where the public could see it, obviously, angered a lot of Americans. And uh, there was a lot of criticism uh, that the Biden administration didn't shoot it down right away. We had state legislators across the mid- Midwest posting on Twitter that they'll do it themselves with their guns, and eventually the U.S. shot it down. Uh, so, so the public nature uh, causes some embarrassment, I think, frankly, for both sides. Uh, they, they both have to take action. They have to respond to domestic constituencies while, while maintaining their international posture in front of their neighbors or, or their allies. Uh, and uh, now they're they're in this situation where 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 they they have to take the follow up they deem necessary. So for the U.S. that that started with uh, Biden I'm sorry Blinken's trip being canceled, and uh, I, I would expect uh, the Chinese government to also take similar action. So if that includes. Uh, 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 you know, no dialogue on certain issues. You know, there are the eight items or the eight policy areas that last summer after Pelosi visited Taiwan, that China said that it was it was temporarily pausing talks with the U.S. Climate change was one of them. That was supposed to resume. It was an outcome of the G20 uh, meeting between uh, Presidents Biden and CEO. So maybe that won't kick off. Or uh, mm-hmm. frankly, even at the working level, you know, U.S. diplomats in China call up their their counterparts in the so- Chinese government. Maybe the phone calls don't get answered. So how easy is or difficult is it going to be to mend the U.S.-China relationship after this? Is it just a question of waiting for a few weeks and then the Blinken visit will be rescheduled and we'll be back to where we were before this? Or is it going to be more complicated than that? Uh, you're probably correct. They'll begin some some level of uh, slightly more positive or slightly less negative interaction within a few weeks or a few months. Whether or not Blinken's trip gets rescheduled that, that quickly, uh, but frankly, we we just don't know. And, and here's the thing with that. Doesn't matter when or what else is going on, a lot of tension or there haven't been any trigger events in the preceding days or weeks. Whenever Blinken goes, there's going to be an enormous amount of criticism from hardliners in the U.S. who say he just shouldn't be going at all. Uh, and it's going to be a big challenge for the Biden administration to try and explain why at that time, whether that's in March or in April or May, well, why that's a, the right time for this. And uh, I don't think they've actually shown, um, I'm referring to the Biden administration more broadly, I don't think they've actually shown that they're able to successfully market this. And they're certainly not able to successfully persuade their critics that it's appropriate for Secretary of State Blinken to visit China. Well, what is interesting is despite these relations, which some people say are at, you know, the lowest level really since 1972, trade continues. Um, we, we had that latest trade data last week, which showed that trade between the US and China hit a record high last year, even though these diplomatic relations are deteriorating imports and exports uh, between the two countries totaled $690 billion. Um, so something is working, isn't it? Uh, certainly behind the scenes. That, that, that's a really interesting point, because another way that the tensions can manifest itself, because it has in the past, is in, in the business or the trade area. And, and, and one classic example to the frustration of American companies is uh, when there are political tensions, then things they need with regulators in China get slow walked or they find themselves the target of uh, greater investigation, tax audits and things like that. And on the U.S. side, 
there, there's a lot more restrictions coming coming up. We see uh, efforts at the state level and the federal level to limit uh, purchases of land. Agricultural land's been in the news a lot by Chinese companies. Uh, TikTok is still in the news, uh, and there's efforts to uh, impose limits on outbound investments by U.S. companies, which uh, does target China, uh, U.S. company investment in China. So uh, the political tensions uh, they're they're not far away from the business space now. Maybe it doesn't have an effect on kind of the, the, the trade in more mundane goods, whether that's the export of ag products or, or consumer goods from the Chinese uh, manufacturers to the U.S. But once we start moving higher up the value chain, whether it's in the tech space or the financial space, which uh, you know, a lot of us know is a, a market that the U.S. companies want to expand in China, uh, I, I think we're going to see some carryover into the, into the, uh, the business sphere soon. Okay, Ross, thank you very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safeco Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning, the SX200 in Australia off a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down now 0.6%. Uh, the Cosby also on the decline off 0.4%. And it's going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng, looking for a fall of about 200 points at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two light patches, uh, rain patches. Going to be misty in the morning and at night, maximum temperature about 21 degrees. And then the outlook is mainly cloudy and misty in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 18 degrees, 88% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. Hong Kong has sent a search and rescue team to Turkey after the government there called for international help following Monday's earthquake that has now killed at least 12,000 people. Speaking at Hong Kong International Airport ahead of the team's departure for Istanbul, Turkey's Consul General Peyami Kaleonju expressed his gratitude. I would like to thank here the government of Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. They very fast, promptly and positively replied our request. They organized a very professional uh, team of uh, search and rescue officers as well as uh, uh, firemen department uh, and the health department. They are taking in part uh, in this uh, delegation. The acting chief executive, Eric Chan, said that so far there have been no reports of Hong Kong residents seeking help in the areas hit by the quakes. Earlier, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, travelled to the area worst hit by the quakes. Speaking in the south of the country, near Syria, Mr Erdogan said there had been difficulties with the initial response due to damaged roads and airports, but that rescue efforts were now back on track. All state institutions are working at the moment. On the first day, we experienced some problems, but then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. We will never allow our citizens to be left out on the streets. The Turkish opposition has accused the government of mismanaging relief efforts. The chief executive, John Lee, says he hopes to sign a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates to build on trade ties that surged by about 35% in 2021 to just under 13 billion US dollars. Mr. Lee was speaking at an investment forum in Dubai, the last stop on his Middle East tour. An FTA between Hong Kong and the UAE, therefore, is the logical next step in our relations. I'm confident it will substantially boost trade and investment ties between us. 
The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has addressed British MPs thanking the UK for its support, but asking for his country to be supplied with military aircraft. In his speech, President Zelensky said Ukraine would prevail over Russia and this would have far-reaching consequences. The victory will change the world, and this will be a change that the world has long needed. After we win together any aggressor, it doesn't matter, big or small, we'll know what awaits him if he attacks international order. Finally, a human resources consultancy says many international employees left Hong Kong for more livable locations due to the COVID restrictions imposed in the SAR last year. ECA International says that Hong Kong ranked number 92 in the list of the world's most livable locations last year, down 15 places from the year before. ECA's regional director for Asia, Li Kuan, says most Asian locations had a higher ranking last year after a fall in 2021. But the situation was different for Hong Kong. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter 